Welcome to Culture Cryptids, where we dissect the spooky ooky of all things horror and monster related, just like it's a fresh cadaver. So yeah, I've been uh, watching Raised by Wolves and I got caught up today. They put out two new episodes last night. But it is it is wild. It is a wild show. Uh, androids, religion, babies. I mean, it's Ridley Scott. It so. sounds like a Ridley Scott production to me. I haven't seen any of it yet. I've been eyeing it, seen a couple trailers, looked away from a couple trailers. I just, I don't know if I can commit. I don't, I want to, but sometimes you're afraid of commitment when you've been burned before. Sometimes your first loves don't work out. You have to move on from them. In case you're wondering, that is in fact an alien reference. But... I've heard good things. A lot of people that I like to read and admire and actually uh, value their opinion on media have really like reviewed it very positively. So that's good. And I will watch it. I just, one of us watches a lot more TV than the other one of us. And I I don't know what you're talking about. I just get distracted and forget that, oh, there's another episode. It's not a movie. There's more. I'm a completionist. I have to watch it all. (laughs) Well, hello and welcome to Culture Cryptids, a horror and occasionally comedy podcast from two longtime horror fans with an axe to grind. Thank you for joining us on our first intrepid expedition into monster media. Each episode, we'll be exploring popular, enduring, and sometimes controversial themes, tropes, monsters, and mayhem that perpetuate the pop culture landscape. Just to get it out there. This is not lore. So if you're looking for, I mean, we research, but if you're looking for extensive research, nice background music, and the dulcet tones of Aaron Mankey, you are definitely in the wrong place. We're very sorry, but that's just not what we're about. I mean, we love lore. Oh, we do. Absolutely. All uh, Aaron Mankey has done amazing things in podcasting and huge fan. I'm JD. I'm one of your hosts, and if monster fucking was an Olympic sport, I would have more gold medals than Michael Phelps. That seems accurate. Who I am sure is a cryptid. There's really no other explanation for him. Those body proportions and my attraction to him cements it. Yeah, that does say a lot about (laughs) where he stands on things. (laughs) Um, I'm your other host, Corey. I am a cryptid connoisseur and... Not into Michael Phelps, but I'm sure he's a lovely man. I'm sure he's a lovely <laughs> man. <laughs> but yeah, together, uh, we are here to be your culture cryptids. And we have been into horror for a long time. And we have been friends for a long time. And one of the things that brought us together, and I think kind of cemented our friendship, was our love of weird and bad and wonderful horror films. Yes, being children of the 80s with somewhat... I don't know, is latchkey kid a good term to use? Uh, dubious adult supervision? Yes, that is that, that is, is perfect. That's perhaps the yeah. term I would use. Yes, yes, of um, experiencing a lot of things. That, way too early. Way too early. Way too, way too early. early. Yeah, um, and one of the goals of this show is to kind of bring current topics in horror to people who may not be familiar with the genre. Because we have, I know we have a lot of friends who are not horror fans. And if you are not a horror fan, but kind of curious about it, this is... A good place to start because we'll talk about some things. Um, And we also want to explore some of our favorite films and tropes because, listen, 
who doesn't love a good trope. And horror is just rich with them. Oh, yes. There's so many great ones, so many terrible ones. Uh, I'm very excited to jump into all of that as we get into it. And we really want to appeal to classic horror fans, new horror fans, old horror fans. That's We, we are you. We want to have a conversation with you. We also want to explore some of the cultural and societal impacts of different monsters and horror-related topics. So there will be some educational points in the show, but not too many. Sometimes. Sometimes. Expect more ranting, but, you know, we know what you're here for. It won't be like a regular teacher. It'll be like a substitute teacher who would just put on a video. That's that's the type of education you're getting. Yeah, Yeah, that checks out. That definitely checks out. Well, for this initial episode, our premiere, um, we figured we would take it back to the old school, to an old ghoul who's so cool. If you want to get down, we can show you the way. Oomph. It's about vampires. That was some lovely alliteration in there. Thank you. Yeah. And tonight we're not talking about just any vampires, because we all know there are a lot of vampires out there. We're going to be bringing it back to perhaps one of the oldest vampires on cinema Nosferatu Nosferatu <laughs> so in case you haven't seen the film we're going to give you a little bit of background to start off with uh, uh, spoiler warning for a film that is almost 100 years old <laughs> uh, it is barely barely under 100 years yeah. old yeah Nosferatu a symphony of horror is a 1922 black-and-white silent horror film directed by F.W. Murnau, a German filmmaker best known for his innovation and heavy emphasis on symbolic imagery in his work. His eye for the unusual is really present in this dark fantasy film, in which an intrepid young German real estate agent is sent to visit an eccentric new client for his employer. This client, the reclusive Count Orlock, lives in an ancient castle in the Carpathian Mountains. As the story unfolds, it turns out that the Count is maybe a little more interested in a tasty human snack than in his new living arrangements, though he soon turns his sights into the unsuspecting German city. This story sounds a little familiar. Are you sure? (laughs) (laughs) Well, along with being one of the best examples of German Expressionism, which is an art movement uh, emphasizing symbolic elements over objective reality... Nosferatu is also the oldest surviving vampire film we have today. Wait, 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 wait. I am definitely sure I've heard this before, but whatever. The movie is pretty universally praised. Right now, currently, it still sits at a 97% on Rotten Tomatoes. And it was, I think one of the really funny things is that it was bashed for its technical prowess for how good good it was and how well it was filmed. Um. Lots of good uh, work with light and shadow. And in doing that, uh, people thought that the monster was way too corporeal for how ghoulish it was. Yeah, he was too real. And a lot of that has to do, I think, with some of the stop motion techniques that they Mm -hmm. really pioneered for this film. Because Murnau really had an eye for making things dreamlike, but also bringing them out of your nightmares and kind of into reality. There there is a lot of good imagery and quote-unquote movie magic that... Is kind of yeah pioneered in this film. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, everybody seems to love this movie. Well, almost everybody. Do you know who didn't quite appreciate the film? Tell me. That would be uh, Bram Stoker's widow. Oh, so this is just Dracula. <laughs> oh, it is 
absolutely just Dracula. Um, one of the more interesting things about this film history is that so soon after the film premiered, Bram Stoker's widow and her estate sued for copyright infringement, and they actually won. And in doing so, all copies of the film were ordered to be burned. But thanks, fortunately for us, at least one print remained in distribution because it supposedly, and here's kind of some lore, supposedly had already been distributed out of the country. And so that one print has been duplicated again and again over the years, and it has developed an, an avid, if kind of small, fan base. So really, it makes it one of the earliest examples of cult film we have. It is worth noting that what you are able to watch on streaming services, which this film is available to stream, is somewhat manipulated from the original, being that the copy that was preserved was not in the best condition. So the title cards that you see, some of the names that are used are not what was in the original um, premiere of the film. Uh, yeah, the the original film, when they were writing it, they did want, for some reason, they didn't get the rights. They were not able to get the rights for Dracula. But instead of saying, well, maybe we'll do something else, they just said, we'll just change it a little bit. So they did change it. The writers did change a lot of the plot, but unfortunately, not enough, not enough, (laughs) not enough. Um, And some of the major changes that they did from instead of changing the story, because originally Dracula is set in the 1890s in London and instead they move it to the 1830s Germany. You've got some renaming of characters. Uh, Of course, you know, we've got Jonathan Harker, but in this, his name is Thomas Hutter. Um, Again, though, if you're watching it streaming, it will have it will have some of the original names put back in. Uh, Renfield is Hernock. We've got Mina Harker, who is Ellen Hutter. I mean, that to me is completely changed enough, I think. But And then, of course, Dracula is Count Orlock. And so for the sake of this, we may refer to some of the characters by their original names, but the Count we are going to stick referring to as Count Orlock. Yes, I think that's one of the defining characteristics of the film is Orlock. And we'll get into that. We'll, we'll talk a lot about Orlock. Uh, another changes they made is they condensed a lot of the plot. They cut a lot of the the side stories out. They cut even some of the key players. There's no Van Helsing in this version. Uh, all of his background history, it's all cut. The cowboy Quincy Morris, which is one of the most more interesting parts of the original Dracula to me. It's just sort of weird that you have this cowboy right. in Dracula. <laughs> uh, he's actually not present at all. And they also cut out Mina's Mina's best friend, Lucy, and any subplots regarding her as the potential victim of Orlock is no longer exists in this film. It's pretty straightforward. Yeah. yeah, you get the I mean, it's not a long film, so you are getting somewhat nitty gritty of the overarching story, because, again, it is about more the atmosphere and the environment than hard and fast story with it. Yeah, they cut out a lot of the psychological aspects and subtext of the original novel just to give you this kind of dark fantasy. It's very moody. There's a lot of shadows and light. And again, that comes back to the technical prowess of the film, which is just incredible if you think about when this was made and what they were working with in a lot of ways. It's just, it's amazing. If you haven't seen it, you should watch it. But that's not I, I just, I think about the iconic scene him coming up the stairs and the the use of shadow in that to make him seem even more just did like grotesquely proportioned. And that stance and that look is something that even people who've never seen this film, it 
it is iconic. You know, the hunched and the long fingers mm-hmm. and everything. As you're kind of like creeping hey, towards, there's, there's hey. if you don't know, there's like a very distinct gesture that you make when you're. We're doing towards. the gesture, We're doing right, gesture now. right now. Both of us are doing it. But it is true that even if you haven't seen the film, you you know the look of this vampire. You know, you know Nosferatu. You know the creepy fingers, and it's been parodied so much in pop culture. Hold on. Creepy fingers. Creepy fingers. Creepy fingers. fingers. It's been parodied so much in pop culture, including, like, I mean, SpongeBob SquarePants. That's, there's an episode. What? Yeah. There's an episode of SpongeBob SquarePants that just, Nosferatu has a cameo in it for some random reason. It's. And he's doing creepy hands. He's doing creepy hands (laughs) and creepy lighting things. Yeah. It's, it's silly and fun and it's a wonderful kind of creation that has been moved into pop culture and remains to this day because of that. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of things in Nosferatu that have kind of remained as part of what we understand about vampires and in really fun and interesting ways. But let's talk about that climactic ending. Oh (laughs) yeah. Another thing (laughs) that they do cut in in, compared to Dracula is they could just completely change the ending, which is interesting to me that they were able to sue for copyright infringement because all the elements are here, but they mix it up a little bit. And that ending is completely different. To me, it is different enough. But I guess at the time, being so close to, you know, the uh, closer to the publication of the source material than we are, it probably read more. But to me, watching this, because our watch of it was actually my first time seeing it. Mine Again, too. I am very familiar with it. Things are iconic, but I had never watched it all the way through. And to me, I was like, okay, I can see the bones there, but there's enough, a different visage to it that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I am no copyright expert, so, or legal expert. Oh, yeah. Yeah. At Nor all. am I. But definitely there are enough similarities for them, for Stoker's estate to win that lawsuit. And to have it destroyed. And to have it destroyed. Yeah. Um, I think it's also worth noting that the music, you know, with so many other changes to how the film was originally presented. What we hear musically in the streaming versions of the film we have now is of course different than what was originally premiered. Of course, like with a lot of silent films, the music was done live. This one was done with a full orchestra, a live orchestra. And with what we watch now, we get this fucking <laughs> Calliope music that is just too circusy for it's- me at times. <laughs> It's manic circus, but I also, in a way, it works because it's very unsettling. As manic as pixie dream circus, manic pixie dream circus calliope music that is a little unsettling as you go it, for being added at some point in post. You know, it's I don't know when that particular soundtrack was added, and even trying to look up a lot of things about the soundtrack, I wasn't able to find when that version was added. And maybe I'm just bad at research, which is also a thing. I mean, we do know that the music originally presented is nowhere to be found, even, you know, sheet music. So it's not something that can be recreated. Yeah, it's, it's been lost at the original premiere. And when they premiered the film in Berlin, uh, it was accompanied by a live orchestra. So the sound like, which was popular for the era, the there was live music that accompanied the film. Um, But again, the premiere of Nosferatu was a spectacle as well. Right. Not only was it held at a zoo, it also was a costume party, which is... That is a big to-do. It is. It is a really big to-do for this film. You like caged animals? You like costumes? You like live music? Come watch this vampire movie. Come watch this vampire movie. And people did. And people did. And they loved it. 
even at the time, they loved it. People heaped critical praise all over this film. They just did not like how well it was filmed. They just did not like how well it was filmed. It was unsettling. Yeah, this... There's a lot to like in it, though, I think. And oh, I mean, as much as I bash the music, I, music is a huge thing for me in movies. I am one of those people who is like, hey, you want to listen to the score for It Follows? Or <laughs> do you want to listen to the Drive soundtrack? Music is a huge thing for me in film. And even though it was Manic Pixie <laughs> Dream Circus music, it did elicit responses because as far as like Jonathan Harker in this film is just a human labradoodle or golden retriever, some sort of, I don't know dogs, um, lots of energy and the music conditions you to have that feeling with, Mm -hmm. you know, to kind of be there with them as well. And it does change tone. As you said, it does kind of drift more into like dark carnival and places where it needs to. So I didn't like the music, but it was effective. That's <laughs> yeah. what I'll say. Yeah, and and I think that's a fair assessment, is that... And if you like circus music, I'm sorry to anyone listening. You can... We'll give you our email later, and you can send me hate mail about how I should like circus music more. <laughs> but just him, not me. Yeah, just make sure to address <laughs> it to JD. Yeah, there's, there's a lot to be said about the pacing of the film. As you mentioned, Harker or Hutter, the character... You stay with him for about the first half of the film. He's kind of your point of view character. And you kind of go on this journey with him to the Carpathian Mountains. And it's very exciting. And he's having a good time. And you can kind of tell that he's very excited about doing his job and making some money. (laughs) (laughs) And and like, I think I referred to it when we were watching it. And I was like, he's a little bit of like a a, a frat boy. It is frat boy Harker. It is. is what it is. <laughs> and I don't mean that in like a negative sense, but he's just very like barrel chested laughs and floppy hair, floppy hair, very, yeah. Spiking things. Oh yes. That's we'll have to talk about that. <laughs> yeah. But he is kind of this clueless protagonist through most of the story. And even when things look a little suspect, he, he goes to the count's castle and he wakes up and there's bite marks on his neck. And he, he writes a letter to his wife and he's like, I just got bitten by a mosquito. It's so weird that there's these two bites on my neck. Right next to one another. Right next to each other. symmetrical. And at this point in the story, he's also already been warned that there are there are creatures in the valley because they mention a werewolf specifically and like there's there's wrong wrong creature to be watching out for it's true they didn't give him the right information for it but 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 you know what did give him the right information that damn book the book (laughs) so yeah he as he's staying in the inn he comes across this this book and it's this tiny little almost journal size like a pocket notebook but thick it's it's very thick and he's like, oh, what is this? So when he opens the bedside table, instead of a Bible, there is this book, this occult book. Perhaps the Gideons left it there, too. We, maybe they did. <laughs> we don't know where it came from. But he just picks it up, and his immediate response is to flip a page. And every time he opens this book, it opens to a one-line or two-line statements. But, of course, this is a silent film, so you have to do it this way. Open to one or two-line statements that are incredibly pertinent to his situation. Yeah, it is exactly the page he turns to is what he needs right then. It is a magic journal. Magic journal. And every time he laughs it off, and then in one scene, as J.D. has described, he looks at the book, laughs about what's in it. And then spikes it. <laughs> like a football. Like a football. <laughs> and at that point, we just couldn't help but laugh because we were like, this is this is so over the top and like... But also, okay, it fits with his character. Like, I'm I'm along for it. Let's yeah. see where he goes. Yeah, that's the, the first half of the movie is, is got a lot of like manic kind of energy to it. 
because we are following this kind of character who is. And then it is fascinating to me because other silent films I've watched before, again, with the medium, you kind of stick with the same characters through the story and it is very straightforward. But in this one, halfway through, we just completely switch over and it's like, this is Count Orlok's story now. Yeah. Because we, we quite frankly, have maybe had enough, enough of Harker at that point. <laughs> maybe it's time for him to take a break yes. after he, he, falls he, out of a, go, he falls out of a window. It's fine. He needs to go take a nap on that obscenely high bed in the end. <laughs> it bothered me how high that bed you was. You were very concerned about the bed. And I mean... Set dressing is a thing for me. <laughs> but it's realistic. You want high beds. If you're out in the countryside in the 1800s, you want a high bed because you don't want snakes in your boots. No, <laughs> Do you no, not? I don't like that. Okay, okay. <laughs> but I'll forgive you. Okay. Moving on. For me, yeah, you're going to forgive me directly <laughs> for that. Yeah, the second half of the film is probably the better remembered half, too. When people talk about Nosferatu, they kind of stick with the, the later half of the film, because I think a lot of that has the interesting shots, the interesting... Because you like ships, we've got ships. They do have ships, and the ship scenes are great it's fantastic they do a great job where well first orlock has to go and get his own coffin and then he has to carry it to the ship by himself and then put himself in it in the ship in this very delightful sequence he has money why is someone not doing this for him yeah i'm not really sure why he loads his own coffin the way they tell us the count is wealthy and free with his money yes where where are his servants where are his servants they're not they're not there oh they're too close to the original plot that we cannot have them in this (laughs) yes you can't have servants but yeah they do he the scenes on the ship are actually quite well done where it skips. There's a time skip and you're on the ship. And by that time there's a plague on the ship. There's all these rats because that's a recurring theme with Orlok is rats and plague. And there's a mysterious quote unquote plague on the ship. And at this point we come up with just the captain and the first mate being the only two there. And you have this really wonderful scene of Orlock rising from the coffin, which is that iconic shot it, again. I feel like all of the quote unquote movie magic that is in this film and all of the iconic films, it's like they just got halfway through and they're like, oh shit, we've got to do all of the stuff we talked about. And then it, they just blow their movie magic load all yeah. over the last half. And it's the last But half. that's what people remember. Yeah. And I think that that's it's a great way of doing don't it. Don't waste that sound. stuff on Harker. <laughs> no, they don't at all. They don't waste any of it on there. So they have this like delightful scenes with him just rising up with the hands crossed and it's very well done. From there you get of course that ending, the kind of climactic ending where Harker is not really involved in a lot of it at the beginning at all. He's not there yet. Is climactic the right word Perhaps for this not. One? Perhaps no. not. Cinematically Speaking, like, in terms of how it looks, yes. But in terms of story elements, perhaps not. Nay. Yeah, perhaps not. Again, just have to remember that it is an, it is an expressionist movie. It is, yes, yeah. it's absolutely expressionist. You are, It is far more about feelings and emotions that it invokes rather than the story itself. You, you're supposed to feel things through the story. You're not supposed to be concerned with all the little plot details. Which is what happens with me and with it being a film of the time and not being able to film at night. I was like, why is the count out during the day? And then the movie would tell me via a, a title card that it is nighttime. It is nighttime. Okay. We're good now. Yeah, It's, it's night. It's actually night. It just doesn't look like it. Well, um, that's black and white lighting too. But what, what do we have for our ending? It's so, it's so beautiful and flowery. Oh, it is very flowery. Yeah. You have, of course, 
at this point, the vampire is plaguing the city. Again, we have this idea of a plague itself. He is a plague. People are scared. They're in their homes. There's mysterious illnesses all around. And it's through the book, the magic book, that uh, Mina or Mina, Mina Ellen, <laughs> Hutter discovers that there are, in fact, ways that she could perhaps destroy this vampire. So she basically kicks her husband out. <laughs> she kicks him out. That would completely unrelated to the to no, the situation. Yeah, she just but, it's done with him. Yeah, she, she's done. Um, that's my interpretation. That's your interpretation. No, she she has him leave, and then she entices the vampire with her innocence because she knows somehow that she's innocent too. It's not really described how she knows she, but she's innocent, and she entices him with her innocence and enthralls him, and he just creeps up her stairs, which again. Beautiful shot. Shadows, beautiful. Creepy hands. Creepy, creepy hands, hands. Creepy hands. Going up the stairs. She entices him with her beauty until the sun comes up. And that is the end of Nosferatu. Nosferatu, yes. Not Orlok. She, yeah. she defeats the evil vampire with her good Christian woman purity. And sunlight. Yeah, and sunlight. <laughs> That's the, yeah. And sunlight. And sunlight. That's the important part, but the other part makes me kind of want to throw up in my mouth. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There, there's a lot of um, interesting, again, it's hard to talk about these films, especially or, or, early horror, horror, without discussing some of the religious implications and things oh, like that. Oh, for sure. Too. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things to do is obviously, since we've, that that's the movie story, but you can't talk about Nosferatu without talking about Can or- Count Orlock. Yes. And how he, unlike almost every other depiction of Dracula and any of the, any of the various vampires that come after him, Orlok is not handsome. He's not a brooding aristocrat. He's not, there's no charisma. He's like tall. He's spindly. He has no charm. Uh, he is not attractive whatsoever. But he's rich. But he's rich. <laughs> and yes. sometimes that's all that matters. That's all that matters. And he has no interest in turning his victims into vampires at all. He just wants to kill them via, of course, drinking their blood. Drinking their blood. Yes. Yeah. Um, and again, like after the the quote unquote ghost ship appears in the harbor, in which the ship comes in and everyone is dead, which is a classic moment in Dracula as well. Of course, a lot of these, again, this unofficial, unauthorized adaptation of Dracula is going to have a lot of the same elements right. in it as as the the original story. But as he appears in the harbor, his appearance, like, there rats follow him, and there's this fear of plague and terrifying the innocent townsfolk from his otherness and evil that's the creeping in. Yeah, because I think that even, you know, talking about physically how he looks, when you look at more modern vampire media, even if the vampires are hideous, grotesque creatures— there's usually another element attached to them to kind of humanize them a little bit more. Yeah. They're either like hideous and funny or hideous and still somehow have a certain amount of charm, but it's just completely absent in this. I mean, physically he's got the hooked nose, the claw, like creepy fingers, fingers, yes, (laughs) sharp nails, bald. And he almost has a very animalistic looking physical features like rat, like, yeah, he doesn't have the traditional fangs. His teeth are sharp in the front. Like, his incisors are very, very long instead of having canines, which we all know associate that with vampires. And so I think we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about this and talk about 
kind of the implications of the time, because you remember, this film was made in Germany after World War II. After, after World War I. One, but before World but War before II. World War II. So I think it's time that we have to talk about the blood-sucking elephant in the room. We do. Yes. We absolutely do. And and I think that by now, a lot of scholars and a lot of historians have talked about this, but many of them compare his appearance to the stereotypical caricature of Jewish people at the time, especially especially not specifically in 22, but leading up to World War, World War II. II. Yes. Yeah. So we really, really do need to talk about it. And um, I found some great resources that kind of go in a little bit more detail than I was able to. And there's a great article from the Museum of the Jewish People at Viet Hafezat. Listeners, we are going to butcher some things. We do try to find pronunciations when possible, but we want to bring you the information. So forgive us if yeah, we Yeah, I apologize for mispronouncing. And if, again, corrections are welcome to how to pronounce words. I, I try. I try to look it up and sound it out. Um, but I'm not really great at English. So in general, <laughs> words are not my forte. But there's a great article, and we'll link it in the episode notes, that is The Myth of the Vampire Jew and blood libels. And it is a fantastic article. It talks about film at the time. It talks about the history of a very common anti-Semitic view, very comic anti-Semitic view that dates back to the middle ages, which is this, the fabricated concept of blood libel, which is, was a very common accusation at the time. And basically paranoid anti-Semitic Christians accuse their Jewish neighbors of kidnapping Christian children and sacrificing them to use their blood for religious rituals. I mean, you'll even see in, if you look in at some older examples of church architecture, church buildings in Europe, they're depicted in some of the carvings and things that are on the edifices of these buildings. Yeah, yeah. it's it's terrible. There's no historic basics for it, um, but it was used as a tool of persecution. Yes. It, was a, it was a tool to other people in your community that you didn't understand or you didn't like. And it was unfortunately very common throughout Europe. And one of the things to know about the reason we bring this in is talking about Nosferatu. It's hard not to see that caricature in Orlock. Yes. It's very present there. And it also, after that one of um, it, a presence in the film premiere was a, one of the chief editor of one of Hitler's anti-Semitic newspapers. And he was enamored with the film. And he used, he began using that vampire image in his anti-Semitic writings and anti-Semitic cartoons and things like that. And unfortunately you do sometimes still see that terrible caricature today. It's yeah. It's, it's still present. Unfortunately stood yeah, the test this, of time. This yeah. is not a piece of the past. This is happening now. So it's important to kind of be aware when we talk about this, that like there are a lot of implications in, in what it was. Now, when we talk about it too, it's important to note that Murnau, the director himself did not appear to have any anti-Semitic views. He was very friendly with a lot of Jewish people in the film industry, including the actor who plays Hernock, the Renfield, um, the Renfield substitute who was a Jewish actor and they were friend friendly and very got along very well, but we can't, we can't ignore the fact that, you know, 
much like a lot of vampires, Nosferatu was made to sort of invoke fear of the other. And unfortunately, there are a lot of connotations that can arise out of that as people take it and make it more specific. Yeah, I mean, again, it's an expressionist film, so you do have these broad strokes where characters are not fully developed because it is about the imagery and about the feeling that it evokes much more so than the plot itself. So it is very easy to attach something to that. Yes. It's not there and was not intended to be there. Yes. And, and that that's very important to note that we are not saying that the film was purposefully anti-Semitic. We are saying that people looked at this depiction of the vampire and then used it to further hurt a group of people. Anytime there is a creature that is presented as an other, yeah. there's always the chance people are going to use it as a template for something else. It doesn't just happen in this case. This is a, a, a great example of how it can happen. And unfortunately, how that has continued to be some of the characteristics we see in anti-Semitic depictions. But it, it is a trap that you can fall into with it, it any is. story. Yeah. That, yeah. Anytime you tell a story about an other, you have to be aware of what is going on culturally around you. And unfortunately with Nosferatu, it was Germany in the 1920s. And there are some unfortunate attachments, but in talking about this too, the depiction of the Count Orlock doesn't, didn't start there. Yeah. And it, yeah, it doesn't rest solely with Murnau. Yeah. I, the producer, had just as much input into this. I mean, that's a common thing for producers, but I would say even with some aspects of the film and the story, maybe did be like, okay, okay, no, this is what we're doing even yeah. more so than Murnau did. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about the producer. Um, his name was Alban Grau. Grau? Grau. Grau, yeah. And not only was he producer, but he was also the production designer for the entire film. So when you look at the visual elements of the film, they're not related to the lighting um, or camera work, but rather like costumes, set designs, props, storyboards, and even some of like the creature concepts. You know, a lot of the things that I had a problem with. (laughs) (laughs) They all come down to Grau. And he, he was an architect, an artist. And an occultist. And an occultist. Yeah, he was part of a, an occultist order, like her hermetic order. Um, I don't know that much about his role in that. But even before he read Dracula, he wanted to make a vampire movie. And when he couldn't secure the rights, he was like, it's fine. We're still going to make a vampire movie. Yeah. So they actually, he actually founded Piranha Films, which is the production company in Germany, to do that. He wanted to make a series of supernaturally related films of a cult and bring it to the masses and bring all this stuff that he just was very excited about. So like a spooky, silent, black and white Marvel cinematic universe. (laughs) Correct. He wanted to make the first cinematic universe. Unfortunately. But with monsters. But with monsters. Yeah. 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 Much like um, it kind of mirrors what's happened with the... Universal yeah. Dark Universe. It, yeah, the Universal Dark Universe. And like, well, and you would later see that in the Hollywood productions of the Universal Monster movies and their tie-ins. He wanted to do it, but unfortunately, after they were sued and they lost their lawsuit, uh, the studio declared bankruptcy. So Nosferatu was the only film that they made. Where did his fascination with, with vampires come from? Well, Grau was a soldier 
And he actually attributes his interest in vampires to when he was stationed in Serbia. He met a Serbian farmer who told him that the farmer's father was actually a vampire. And so we don't know if the story's true. It's something that he repeated to the press a lot around the screenings of the film. But what we do know is that whether or not that story was true, it's he would definitely have known about Serbian, Serbian folk vampires, including a very iconic one like Sava Savanovic, who was... Great job with that. Thanks! I'm really trying. Um, who was actually an interesting remaining piece of folklore... Um, and this was a vampire who said to live in a windmill and any millers that came to use the windmill, he would murder them. Uh, there's just something about a windmill vampire that is not creepy to me. But it's kind of interesting. And also there's still like the village where Sava said to be come from still kind of talks about the, this story and this folklore. And as late as like 2012, that windmill supposedly fell down because it was in disrepair. And they were like, the vampire might have a problem because his home broke, fell down. <laughs> um, it's great because, like, I found some articles about it and they talked about how they have, like, a, a kind of, they sell a lot of, like, vampire-related paraphernalia in this village and things like that because of this folk legend that came from there. It's really kind of neat. It's kind of neat, yeah. The windmill vampire. The windmill vampire, yeah. So that, that's the thing, though, is, like, whether or not this was true, he would know about these old legends, which kind of brings us to vampire vampires. origins. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> this is not the first depiction of a kind of creature like Orlok. Right. I mean, every major civilization has had some form of a demon inhabiting a body, a blood drinker for millennia. Any, any culture you go back to has some form of a vampire myth. Yeah. Um, and a lot of them, I think a lot of them, when you talk about some of the early ones, cause there's some really neat ones, like the Babylonians had blood drinking demons, even like, even as like in Greek, they had a form, which I'm going to try to pronounce this, but I'm not <laughs> sure if I can. I, that's, I was like, I will, nope, I'm going to let Corey take this one. Thanks, J.D., thanks. Vercolicus? Vercolicus, I think. And it was a creature that was close to a revenant. Um, that's the important takeaway. That's yeah. the important takeaway, yeah. And then also in Ireland and Scotland, you have the Lianchi and the Diradu, which are both female vampire spirit, vampiric spirits, but are more, if you know anything about Celtic, the Celts, this is more like fey legend, which kind of brings us into the difference between these creatures and vampires as, as we know, as them. we know them, yes. because these creatures are all otherworldly beings. They're monsters, they're demons, they're spirits that exist outside humanity. But yeah, to get a sense of like what we're talking about with Count Orlock and the old school vampires, um, we're focusing on Eastern European origins Right. Yeah. The word vampire, as we know it, or as I like to say, this particular one with the Y instead of the I, vampire. You do really love that word. I do. I, anything where I can make a silly noise, I'm going to say it that way. <laughs> it's fair. Uh, that's from 18th century Europe. I What I was able to find first use of the word was noted in 1734 as that spelling vampire. <laughs> yes. Yes. And from from what we're able to determine is that the term actually originates again in Serbia. So, and so vampires, as we know them, 
kind of have their origin stories in the Balkan Peninsula, which is southeastern Europe. Uh, as noted, again, these are not the earliest recorded vampiric creatures, not the earliest vampires. We're not saying this is the definitive origin of it. But how we know them today. How we know them, So yeah. many of the characteristics we attribute to vampires come from this particular region and this time period going forward. Yes. Yes. For, for some reason, these are the vampires that sparked our imagination the most. Yeah, it's strange how much comes from East, like deep deep, dark Eastern European roots. <laughs> yeah. It's especially for this particular creature. It, it is fascinating that so many of things that you think, you know, about vampires, like they all have one little area and it's like, here it is. Here's where it all came from. Yeah. <laughs> so thinking of it and, and, you know, as far as what we consider vampires, what are some of the defining characteristics of vampires? Well, we kind of know what we think about vampires and what they are how they're created and what we know about them now, but that's not necessarily all original. No, there's so much of what we consider to be steadfast vampire lore that just was not there at the beginning. One of the big things that is attributed to vampires is for instance, in Nosferatu, he's enthralled by her purity and the sun kills him. Yes. Sunlight, not an original thing as far as killing them. They, were more active at night, which makes sense considering how hideous they were. I would be the same way, but sunlight there's depictions of it weakening them in some ways, but not killing them. Yeah. Before Nosferatu sunlight was not an attribute that killed vampires. Yeah. But again, the dead usually walk at night because it's, it's scarier that way, you know, but, and they're ugly and they're, and they're ugly. <laughs> yeah. But sunlight was not an original feature. It yeah. was added much. It was matted with this film. And that's not even part of Bram Stoker's Dracula is that he can like uh, Dracula can go into the sun. He's weaker, as you said, right. but he doesn't kill him and he isn't killed by it. But after Nosferatu, that became part of the lore that has. That's just what it was. Yeah. And it's still to this day. Most vampires you think about in the modern context have some sort of aversion to the sun. So staking is a big thing, but how does that differ from what we perceive it to be? Yeah, I think the modern stake interpretation is that you have to have a specific type of wood. Yeah, and it has to be the heart. Yes, and you must put that stake directly through the heart. Which is not there originally. No, not even a little bit. You Why the chest, you ask? <laughs> well, yeah, why you do have a lot of depictions of putting a stake through the chest of the vampire. And later that did turn into the heart. Yeah. But the chest is also the biggest part of the body. And if your purpose is to pin the dead creature to the grave, then of course you're, you're going to go for the largest surface area. Because the original purpose was to pin it to the grave um, so that you could dispose of it further. Of course, now we think of a stake killing a vampire permanently. That also was an original feature. And they were a lot of times, I think you said iron. Yeah, metal and iron are there. There is wood mentioned, but in the older, like now, like you think about like Buffy or other depictions, it's just like any type of wood will do. But in ancient lore, it did have to be specific types of wood, like Hawthorne is one that's mentioned. Um, but a lot of the times it was just metal and iron, even some excavations that they've done of graves. Even recently, you will see metal iron spikes either through the chest area or in some cases even in the mouth to you know prevent that not not biting <laughs> yeah you don't you want to stop people from biting yeah. you yeah um another 
thing that we think about when we think about vampires is the idea of them not having a reflection. And as far as tracing that back, it does have some basis as far as mirrors, but it wasn't the mirror specifically. It was the fact that your more antique ancient mirrors were backed with actual silver. And silver has always been something that is not great for vampires like garlic. It's pure. Silver is considered a pure metal for a lot of religious and cultural connotations throughout time that so you wanted to go for silver so they would hang mirrors on the outside of doors in some cases mm-hmm. to confuse the vampire because it's yeah yeah and to, to confuse the undead like all forms of undead because it wasn't just a specific vampire thing yeah. right that's i think so yeah yeah um so stoker's who gave us the mirror thing right well it's attributed <laughs> to stoker most often but Actually, a little older than that, which this, is... Yeah. I found this extremely fascinating. Yeah, this is one of our favorite bits of knowledge that we kind of uh, found while we were researching this. So the idea of not having a reflection, you go fifty about 50 years prior to Dracula and Alexandre Dumas, you know, three musketeers, man in the iron mask. Count of Monte Cristo. Yes. Prolific author. Wrote a very not known short story um, called The Vampires of... The Carpathian Mountains, which is the first thing to of note that brings up the no reflection. Yeah, and that's you also see um, not casting a shadow in that work as well, which is something that's often attributed to Stoker as well. Now, that's not to say that Stoker stole these things. We don't know where in the lore they came from, right? But we do know that they predate Dracula, so predate this kind of myth. It's no, it's not a blame. It's just fascination on our part. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's interesting, and because but again you may have lost a lot of lore in this time. So we don't know how prolific that idea was. Yeah. um, One of the ones that I always have a problem with is (laughs) running water. I mean, that's mentioned, but I won't even go into even in Nosferatu. He's in a ship. Like how does the running water thing work? (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's always kind of a, that one's an interesting one for me too, because running water is such a thing to also a sign of purity. There's a lot of signs of purity when you have running water and holy water and all these things. You got to be pure. But religious stuff. Religious you say? What? No, not about vampires. But a lot of that does kind of vampires and other undead creatures weren't able to cross any sort of running water, so rivers, or but I mean, is the ocean really running water? Then you have to ask yourself. It moves. It has <laughs> it currents does. and it tides. Yeah. But I don't know how that factors how in. How very scientific of me. The ocean? Yes, it moves. Yes. <laughs> Touche, sir. Yes, Touche. Where is my degree? <laughs> science. Yes. Good sciencing. Good sciencing. But yeah, this, I mean, we don't really just talk about the oceans and this sort of things. Because again, Orlok is able to move across the ocean. No problem. No big deal. Most, like a lot of your vampire stories, they are ships. Yeah. Love ships. Ships are fine. Yeah. We can get on ships all day, but no rivers. Can't cross that footbridge. Mm-mm. Yeah. Uh, oh, but a lot of times you have to look at rivers and, and lakes and these kind of are natural boundaries to an area. So after you leave the area, you may leave the area of the vampire's presence. Right. Is perhaps one of the things. And there's no, again, there's no scientific answer. We don't have a definitive answer for you about how this works, but I would imagine like that's, probably where it came from is that kind of natural boundary between places. Yeah. It's like if, so a vampire attacks were attributed to something else that would be stopped by a natural barrier. That's why they can't cross water. Yeah. Yeah. They cross water. Makes sense. 
Yeah. Um, but you don't hear about not being able to cross woods or mountains. <laughs> no. Yeah. Like, it's a good thing mountains don't deter them, right? Because they would be in so much trouble. Yeah. We would, they, they, everything would still be in, e- in Eastern Europe <laughs> if mountains were an issue. Hanging out in the Balkans. <laughs> yeah. I, so, one of the other big things about vampires that we think about all the time are fangs. And specifically, two fangs. Two fangs. Two sharp fangs. Two sharp fangs. In the front of your mouth. Sometimes you can get four fangs if you want to be, like, fancy about it. But mostly just two. Yeah. Not original. No. Just regular old teeth. Yeah. And either regular teeth or... More primitive. Or primitive teeth. Like, very sharp, animalistic, all-over mouth. Like, those are... what you would see in a Chinese crested mouth. (laughs) That's specific, I know, (laughs) but... really specific. But look it up, listeners, and you will have exactly what the image that you. You are talking have. about the dog, right? Yes. Okay. Yeah, okay. Chinese crested dogs. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I assume that that's what you meant—some sort of animal. But yeah, that's, that's a dog, right? <laughs> they have primitive teeth. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm I'm not going to look it up right now. I'm not ready for that. Yeah. So that's the thing too, as well as like drinking blood. We attribute to all vampires, right? Like every vampire drinks blood, except not. Yeah, a lot of them were just, hey, let's murder. Let's just murder you. <laughs> let's just yeah. kill. Kill, kill, kill. A lot mm-hmm. of the earliest vampires murdered through, like, either they bludgeon or throttle their victim to death. Or even, they just cause a plague. Just cause a plague. That's how you kill people, right? Yeah. yeah. Or if there was going to be biting, it wasn't necessarily on the neck. No. No. <laughs> one of my favorite is that one of the popular places to bite would be, like, between the eyes. Which is... How do you even work that I out? I don't know. I just, but I love it. <laughs> I imagine just like using like one tooth to like gently puncture, and then a very Capri Sun like situation where you just put a tiny straw and just. I just kind of imagine somebody like putting their face like right there on your forehead and just, just leaving a big hickey, <laughs> chomping down, and somehow that yeah that was that was part of the you see that in the lore sometimes too, which is also pretty fun. But, yeah. But you know what we what we do have animal transformations that is original. Yeah, yeah. Animal transformations, which you see, you don't see it in Orlok. Orlok does not actually transform into animal, but he is associated with animals. With He's like the rats, with the rats. For and, yes. But a lot of times, early vampires had these associations with animals. Specifically, a lot of times it was like wolves or dogs. And this is what gets me. It's like, why would you associate them with wolves or dogs? Because tracks near. <laughs> Graveyards? Yeah. That's, animals don't move around at night in open spaces. Animals don't scavenge. No. No. So if you see animal tracks next to a body or a grave, oh my God, they're a vampire. <laughs> That's a sign. You're a vampire. Some of the leaps that are made to yeah. establish these connections are quite hilarious. Yeah. So they must turn into that kind of animal, whatever you're seeing the tracks for because of it. Yeah. So you see... You see Wolves and dogs associated. Of course, you see bats. That's like the classic one are bats because bats are scary and night dwellers. And that's yes. kind of, I think, one of the main fa- facets there. And of course, rats. But then also certain insects you see too. Well, unclean things. Unclean yeah. things. Yeah. Anything unclean is and associated. You There are insects in a graveyard? Who would have imagined? No. Yeah. I can't believe that that would be the case. Preposterous. So there are really just two one, two things that are a defining characteristic of every vampire that you see from this Serbian origin mm-hmm. onward. Yeah. And those are? Well, the first one is that they are originally humans who returned 
returned as undead somehow, whether they were possessed by a demon or a devil after death, or they, for some other means, unclear. But yeah, they had to at one point be demon, well, sorry, one point be humans who returned from the grave. And then the second one is that somehow they steal life from the living. Yeah, whether that's biting, sucking blood, or just a good old-fashioned throttle. Yeah, (laughs) somehow they steal some sort of life force, and that can be like a psychic life force and a lot of essence or, you know, murder. But most commonly you see blood now. But at the beginning, that wasn't always the case. So that's it. Like, that's how you define early vampires. Also, and I know I've said this multiple times, ugly. Hideous. (laughs) Yeah. Um, um, Whenever you think about, or not think about, but when you look at original interpretations of vampires, like Eastern European onward, and this kind of it informs a lot of like the staking why some of the staking is a big thing they were just these bloated corpses all purplish and ruddy looking because they're all full of just they're like a evil bitey water balloon full of blood <laughs> oh my god that's beautiful imagery isn't i just it? see like a, i just see a water balloon with fangs now Good eek job. blah eek blah yeah <laughs> But that's where you get the staking. It's staking, of course, pinning them into the grave, big part of it. But also, you're just going to deflate that like a blood-filled pufferfish. (laughs) That's exactly what it is. It's very unattractive, which is also funny when you consider what vampires have become now as these beautiful creatures with their sparkly sparkly skin, pale complexions. Handsome. Handsome. Not in any way bloated. Seductress. No, no, no bloat at all. Vampires don't bloat anymore. But that's true, though, is that you would see. I these... mean, maybe they do if they feed off of someone who's had a lot of salt in their diet. Oh, <laughs> I got dad jokes. You do. Yeah, you do. That and like another thing that they <laughs> talk about, too. No, it's <laughs> you're just thinking about your dad jokes. Oh, no, not all the time. Just most of the time. Anyway, anyway, another thing, too, that you see a lot are like long, sharp fingernails and wild, unkempt hair. A lot of things that would come from, again, what you would consider a corpse to look like. Basic decomposition. Base, basic decomposition were signs of it be, someone being like a vampire appearance. I mean, the nails and the hair are definitely growing. It's not the skin pulling back because of decomposition. No, not at all. Not at all. This not is all. not a scientific process. They are a vampire. Well, I mean, if you... This is the 1700s, and while science is prevalent, most of these stories do come from small villages and right. towns. So I, I don't want to make it seem like we don't have science or any, you know, people people aren't stupid. They are working with the information that they that have. That they have, yes. yes. And, and that's where a lot of superstition comes from is this lack of information. So you fill that. Fill in the blanks. It's a good case of filling in the blanks. Yes. Yeah. That is so much of folklore. Is it that? is. It is. People filling in the blanks. And how they fill them in is what's so much fun to me and to you is that we like to know, you know, where, where those connections. I just yeah. love like getting from point A to point B and the wackiness that ensues in between. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. So what makes a vampire? Well, when you think about vampires today, I think what we think about the most are vampires that are bitten a vampire is usually bitten by another vampire and then turned into a vampire. But that doesn't really mesh all the way with the orig- some of the original stories. And a lot of it comes from, well, 
what makes a vampire. And when you get into the original stories, like Count Orlok, uh, we don't know where he came from. We don't know where Orlok came from. We, he doesn't have any origin stories. So these early vampires, their origin is unimportant to whatever story is being told. Right. It's just, it's the story. I, I really think that it being almost akin to like a STI or like a transmitted thing. Mm-hmm. I don't think you see a lot of that until there's more sexualization added to it as well. Yeah. To kind of go hand in yeah. hand. Yeah. And I think that's definitely something we should talk about when we talk about kind of modern interpretations of vampires a little bit more. Oh, which we will do. Yeah, absolutely. But for the early stories, there's no, there's no sexual element. Mm-mm. They're not enticing you. Killing they're, machines. They're killing machines. Yes. They are. And, and they're, but they're killing machines in odd ways. So to become a vampire, because, because again, these original stories, especially original works of fiction, don't give us origins for our big, bad vampires. We don't have it, but we're human and we like to make sense of things. Yeah. We, we need to explain away the, the unexplainable in yeah. some way. So in folklore, obviously humans have come up for plenty of ways to create a vampire. And so we'll go to how to become a vampire. <laughs> so maybe she's born with it. Maybe she is a vampire. So <laughs> yes. Being born with it. Yeah. Being born with it. Yes. Uh, children could be born with specific signs that they may return as a vampire after death. Some of those being um, the amniotic membrane being over the face. Sometimes in some cultures are referred to as being born with a veil over your face. Mm-hmm. Um, fun to note that is in a lot of cultures, especially of App- like even in Appalachian mm-hmm. culture, more like mystic spiritual it is meant it means that you have second sight that you have some sort of extrasensory perception not relevant to this but worth noting no but it is it is a culturally universal thing not just for vampires not just for but, vampires yeah. but being a lot born, of these i would say are probably attached and attributed to other things as mm-hmm. well yeah so you've got how do you become a vampire you are born with teeth <laughs> Terrifying. So you don't grow teeth. You are born with a full set of them. Uncommon, yes, but not impossible. I especially like this one. Hailing to us from Romania, we've got extra nipple. I mean, it happens. <laughs> Triple nipple, boom, you're a vampire. If you were a victim of suicide, that would mean you're a vampire. But it makes sense to me that that would be something that would cause you to be a vampire. You're wanting to escape from life and... So much of vampirism and so much of these monsters is tied in the root of like some sort of transgression. Mm-hmm. So you're trying to escape. You've done this thing that is horribly religiously wrong. So what's the ultimate punishment? You have to live forever. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's part of it because definitely in Christian lore, as we are looking in this region, it's very heavily Christian. You have a lot of that dying and unclean death in a lot of ways. And this is not me saying that this is the case, but however, Suicide, especially in the Catholic Church, is considered unclean. Yes, and a lot of a lot of, especially when you look at uh, Russian folklore, is attributed to the church specifically. Yeah. Like you have this, you have um, if you rebelled against the church in any way at all, you were going to be a vampire. So listen to the church, do what we say. Yeah, or, or you'll be a blood sucking demon. Yeah, or you'll yeah return. Or just the a throttling dead. demon. Or throttling yeah. demon. One of the two. Yeah, that's. And that's the thing, though, is that anybody who crossed the church and just about anything could have these un- like unclean or unholy deaths that were not, you know. So building off of, you know, unclean death by contagion. Mm-hmm. That's a big one. 
especially if it's of unknown origin. And you do see a lot of that of vampirism being attributed to sicknesses that are happening. Uh, one that I just think is really ridiculous is an animal jumps over your grave. Boom, you're a vampire. Yeah, why not? I mean, somehow that animal's going to turn you into a vampire. You got a feisty kitty who sees a fresh pile of dirt and wants to jump over it. Sorry, buddy. Better be careful. Yeah, you're going to be throttling in yeah. nighttime soon. Yeah. And look like a water balloon filled with blood. <laughs> you want to be that water balloon life, yeah. I guess. Uh, being a witch mm-hmm. often meant that you were going to be a vampire, you know, yay patriarchy. Yeah, if you yeah. were a witch in life, of course you'd come back as something worse in yeah. death. I mean, you even had instances where trials and executions, much like witches, would happen if you were accused of being a vampire. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to let you tell this one because I, it just, my brain can't process it. I I just think this one's really interesting that I found in some of what I was looking through is that if you are the seventh child in a family that has six children of the same gender, like if you are the seventh child of the same gender of the first six, you might be a vampire. Just the setup that we're doing sounds so much like (laughs) terrible redneck jokes. If you're the yeah, you if might you're be, the seventh child of the same gender, you might, you might be, be a vampire. vampire. <laughs> it's it is the weird thing though. But then again, you have to look at the cultural associations of seven and how that plays right. into so many cultures. The seven is a, a mystic or important number for so many people. So going back into the idea of the other, you know, you've got your vampire outbreaks, especially those in earliest lore. Like, you know, mentioned about death by contagion. Yeah. A lot of that was tied to sicknesses or plagues or famine, drought, any of that. Yeah. A lot of the earliest vampires that you find dating back to that 1700 period come from Serbia. And a lot of them are surrounded by some really interesting tidbits. One of the earliest vampires and the earliest vampire, like recorded record, is a man named Pitar Blagovich. And he died in 1725. And after his death, several other people began to die around him. And each were supposedly within 24 hours of each other. So there were about nine deaths in eight days. Mysterious deaths after this man died. So before their deaths, a lot of the villagers claimed to be throttled by him at night. Which means he would come and put their arms, his arms around their throat and, you know, try to kill them. They love that throttling. They do. They really do. And... Even his wife claimed that then one night, like, he came to her and asked for his shoes. And so her response to this was, she moved out of the village. She just left. She was like, bye. Bye. Yeah, bye. Um, So because of this, and so many people had, at this point, so many people had died, the villagers opened his grave. And, of course, they immediately found signs of vampirism, which in this case, where they found that his hair and his beard had grown. Somehow. And of course he had new skin and he had new nails and they were long. And then also he Again, had, not a sign of normal decomposition. No, that's not how bodies are. <laughs> and he had supposedly fresh blood in his mouth, which as again, these are all signs that we know are perfectly natural. Especially if you aren't practicing embalming. Right. Which in these rural communities was not a normal practice. It's not a normal practice. I mean at this you time. had some like of course there wasn't mod- modern embalming. You had some aspects of mm-hmm. embalming, but Yeah. Yeah. These would all be normal things to see in a decaying body. Yes, absolutely. So this case is interesting because it became famous because a lot of the Austrian government officials came to investigate these mysterious deaths. 
And in doing so, because of the frenzy around the village, the village was so, so determined that he was the reason these people had died, that this vampire had. They, uh, they actually confirmed the, the vampirism claims because when they exhumed the body and they found these things, they're like, I don't know. And the people were so set on like getting rid of him. They just, they let him, they let the villagers, they staked him through the heart, of course. And then, which, which caused completely more fresh blood to just bubble up out of his mouth and his ears. Because corpses don't have gases and other things inside of them. Yeah. And, and so the community, the, you can look up this case. It's actually really interesting. And the officials were basically like, well, I, I guess hopefully nobody will look into this too much, but I guess if the villagers think that it's vampires, it must be vampires. Typical government. <laughs> yeah. They're just like, um, I guess we'll just, and I, it feels like to me reading about the story, it was a lot of them just sort of placating the, the people in the era. But unfortunately, because they were feeding into the community frenzy for vampires, this is why you get a lot of those stories that left Serbia and kind of moved across Europe to like France and Germany and England. And which is why you start to see soon after that's when you start to see the first kind of English uses of vampire in the rest of Europe. So I think we have to say thank you for stoking a mob mentality (laughs) so that we can have vampires today. I guess. Yeah. The thing that these stories all have in common is vampires kind of are tied to these periods of unrest and misfortune in communities. Any type of fear you know, unrest or fear of unknown people, strangers coming into your community is going to, it can stoke things like this. Yeah. It can create a greater sense of fear and a greater sense of what is happening and how do I fix it? Which leads you to, again, when you, in the case of Nosferatu, you have an outsider coming in and count Orlok, who is an unknown, rich, strange looking fellow who comes into your community who must be a vampire. And of course in the story it is because that's the story that we're talking about. But in real life, this person can be an outsider, which happens all the time when new people come into a community and are blamed for every social ill and bad thing that happens. Yeah. We don't, we don't, you know, it's not like we don't see this every day. Yeah. This, this is not still something that happens, right? This it's is- part of, I think just human nature that whenever we can't understand something, and this is a whole, I think a whole lot of what folklore does is it, it brings agency. It gives you a physical thing to fight, which can help you survive bad times. Whenever we're not able to make sense of things, it, it's hard. And sometimes we have to create monsters to be able to make sense of the world, just to be able to survive. Yeah. And vampires are certainly one of the monsters that people used to explain these things happening to them. Because even if it's someone you don't know, or if it's a family member or a friend that suddenly looks a little different or has passed away, it's easy to blame someone and and put that they did this. I'm not at fault. I'm, I have to fix it or solve this problem, but I am not the reason this is happening. This is not something I've done. It's something that someone else has done to me and to our community. It it goes back and ties into the transgression thing. This person has committed some sort of act or done some sort of thing that they deserve this. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And I have no fault in this at all. They deserve it. Yeah. It's, it's all about finding a place to put blame. Yeah. And I think 
that's at the core of every monster myth and legend that you that you talk about, especially in a lot of the folklore that we still have in popular culture today, is that the monsters we we make these monsters so that we don't have to look too deeply into ourselves. Because if something is a monster, it it can't be my fault. I think that's a good way to explain horror overall. It gives us a good way to tie ourselves to these concepts, maybe appreciate it on a base level, but even though in the back of our mind we're churning stuff left and right, making yeah. more meaning out of it. I, I think a lot of times our interest in horror and our interest in the things that scare us, they tell us more about ourselves and tell us more about of our communities than a lot of us even realize. If you take a step back and look at the things that you're afraid of, they say more about you than they do about everything else. So that is our exploration of old school vampires. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for joining us today. As Today, we, tonight. Today, tonight, whenever you're listening. Noon, lunch break, <laughs> whenever you're listening to us. I, I We hope that you enjoyed kind of our discussion about vampires and our discussion about Nosferatu in general. We hope that you'll take a look at the film again. If you've seen it, kind of watch it again. If you have never seen it, definitely check it out. You can find it usually on Amazon Prime, I think now. If you have Prime, if it you is have Prime, it's free. It's included free. free. Yeah. But you may be able to find it other places too. I think that you can even find a copy or a version on YouTube because it's no longer under copyright. It, yeah, it's fair use. Yeah, yeah, so you can usually find a or copy. Public there. domain. Sorry. It's, yeah, yeah, since it is in the public domain, the film can be found on YouTube as well. We hope that you'll give it a listen or watch and yeah, listen. To yeah, that. you're listen not going to that circus music. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so yes, thanks for joining us. If you have any feedback on the episode, the content that we've included, or corrections, we are very much open to corrections and feedback. Um, be sure to hit us up via the email, uh, which we will provide to you. So on the topic of Nosferatu, we are done. So to you, we say goodbye and good night. Was that sufficiently creepy? It was okay. All right. Culture Cryptids is written, produced, and directed by me, JD. And me, Corey. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Culture Cryptids. Questions, comments, corrections, hate mail? Email us at culturecryptids at gmail.com. We'll see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>